What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Many of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, which is my effort to find the most interesting people in the world and sit with them for hours while I ask questions in an effort to learn. So it would mean the world to me if you would subscribe to the show on your favorite audio platform, watch episodes on YouTube, and tell your friends and family about the podcast. My goal is to help millions learn from the world's most interesting people. So let's get into today's episode. Caitlin Long is the founder and CEO of Custodia Bank. In this conversation, we talk about why she thinks the Fed is a bigger threat to the crypto industry than the SEC. We talk about what actually having a federal bank charter means, what the differences between trust companies, and what the current status is, is a ton of the different bankruptcy cases throughout the crypto industry. I always enjoy talking to Caitlin, and I learned so much. This conversation was no different, and there is a little treat. We also had a couple of people who are subscribers on Twitter join live the remote recording, and one of them even got to ask a question that we've included in this episode. So shout out to Luke. If you want to join some of these remote recordings in the future, go ahead and subscribe on Twitter, and you will see when I post different Zoom links so that you can join, listen to the conversation live, and then get to ask your own questions of the guest as well. Here is my conversation with Caitlin Long. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Before we get into this episode, I also want to tell you about a brand new product called Velo. Velo is faster, easier crypto data. Everyone in the industry is always looking for what's the price? What's going on on the exchanges? Where are assets flowing or not flowing? How is things like open interest and derivatives actually playing out in the market? Well, that's where Velo comes in. It's faster and easier crypto data. You can go to veloweightless.com today. Myself and a couple of friends, we invested in the business, we're advising the founder, and we think it's pretty cool. This one is something that keeps me informed on a daily basis, so you should check them out at veloweightless.com. That's V-E-L-O weightless.com. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. Caitlin, I thought a great place for us to start this conversation is the Federal Reserve and the SEC seem like two of the most important institutions in the American financial system when it comes to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. You tend to think that the Fed is more important than the SEC to crypto. That may not be the thought process most people have. Why do you think the Fed is so much more important? Because it's the single, it controls the single point of failure for the industry, which is US dollar access. If we were to have US dollar access completely choked off, which they've tried to do, but haven't succeeded, <laughs> um, then the digital asset industry would be completely without US dollar access. Now, again, I don't think it's possible for them to completely get rid of US dollar access because, for example, Tether is somehow getting US dollar access entirely offshore, right? We know there's something called the Euro dollar market, which is a market that the US doesn't control, where banks will provide US dollar balances offshore and out of the direct reach of the Fed, but it is indirectly connected to the Fed because ultimately whoever control whoever clears dollars for a non-US bank is ultimately clearing them through a US bank. But those US dollars can circulate permanently offshore and never come back off onshore, which is ultimately what Tether is kind of proving. 
But um, the point is, this US dollar connectivity is a single point of failure issue for this industry. And, and, and until this industry is a lot bigger, it still does require US dollar access. And I've always thought that was more important uh, than, than the securities piece. I understand there are a lot more people impacted by the securities piece, but the US dollar access is one of those things where nobody thinks about it until everybody thinks about it. Talk a little bit as to this U.S. dollar access. Uh, you mentioned that they've already tried to cut it off to some degree. There, there's different levels of uh, maybe sophistication and, and uh, abrasiveness that they could take. Uh, I know that there are a number of lawsuits. I think Custodia also has a lawsuit, um, uh, you know, kind of in reference to the Federal Reserve. What are these lawsuits <laughs> about? And are, are people trying to unblock access or kind of w- what's happening here? Well, uh, the lawsuits are about access to what's called a master account at the Fed. The Fed doesn't serve individuals like you and me. The Fed serves only banks. And up until a few years ago, it was automatic that a chartered bank would get an account at the Fed. In fact, it was required by the Monetary Control Act of 1980 that the Fed, that all banks in the United States keep their reserves on deposit at the Fed. That's how the Fed effectuated monetary policy. It couldn't have reserves held outside of the Fed in order to keep monetary policy tightly controlled by the Board of Governors. And so in 1980, it all got centralized in the Board of Governors. And uh, there's a requirement for all banks to keep their reserves there. Uh, But what has happened in the last few years is the Fed reinterpreted, quote unquote, uh, the law and started to change how it was granting access requests. And it started with a Colorado marijuana credit union. Uh, it moved to the Narrow Bank, which is uh, TNB. It's a bank that was going to service the, the money market industry. Uh, and then it, it, it of course, uh, moved to digital asset specialty banks, uh, which is what Custodia is. Now there are fintechs as well. So you mentioned there are multiple lawsuits. This is so much bigger than just crypto. It, it's, it's, it goes to the heart of what is a bank and who, who controls, who gets to define what is a bank. And does the Federal Reserve have a veto that Congress never gave it over what is a bank? And uh, that's what's being litigated. There are now three lawsuits, and I understand more are coming. So what does it exactly mean when we talk about a bank that could be in existence without being beholden to these kind of federal oversight or, or federal regulations? Um, you know, I'm an investor in uh, Custodia, and yep. it seems like you guys have started out at the state level, now trying to get the master account, but there's still an option for a state level. How, how does this work? Yeah. So historically, banks have always been chartered by U.S. states ever since the inception of the United States. Um, it's only, it was only during the Civil War that they created a federal bank chartering authority called the OCC. And, uh, but they're equal. The states and the OCC have equal power to charter banks. So the punchline is that if a bank has a state bank charter, which is what Custodia has, historically, again, it was always able to plug into the industry utilities. What I mean by that is the FDIC, which is the insurance fund for the industry, and the Fed, which operates the US dollar payment system. Those were historically always viewed as utilities. And Congress always kept separate the chartering power so that the states and the OCC chartered banks 
but the utilities didn't have chartering authority. Okay, so again, they're trying to blur the lines and read power for themselves that they did not have. So you asked about the, the how is it that we've tried to maintain U.S. dollar banking access for digital assets in the face of the the outright hostility from the Biden administration and going back previously the Obama administration, um, which started something called Operation Choke Point. Now there's Operation Choke Point 2.0. Uh, so Obama, under the Obama administration, was Operation Choke Point 1.0, and it's that started with payday lenders, where the FDIC just did, politically didn't like the payday lenders. It was the FDIC and the Obama Justice Department decided to sort of again reinterpret the law um, to read power that they didn't have, and they started to pressure the banks uh, for doing business with high risk industries, and it ultimately expanded to 30 different industries. And it's this laundry list of industries that the left doesn't like, adult entertainment, firearms, um, ammunition, um, oil and gas. And of course, it started with the payday lenders. The payday lenders sued. And originally, the FDIC said, oh, we never did anything like put pressure on the bank examiners to pressure the banks to stop serving these industries. But when the plaintiffs got access to discovery, guess what? It became clear that the FDIC had lied. And so there was a settlement and the FDIC agreed to roll it all back. But it's, it unfortunately came back again. Um, uh, Trump was able to, to, to roll it back partially, uh, but it, it's now back with, with a vengeance. And uh, at the beginning of Operation Choke Point 2.0, was the digital asset industry. And I will say, it, 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 unfortunately, Washington just doesn't know how to separate the wheat from the chaff. They've basically painted the entire industry with a broad brush that we're all, you know, um, we're all FTX, right? And, and the, the reality is FTX was an offshore exchange, never audited, never, never even had a board of directors, apparently not regulated, and uh, unfortunately, uh, caused a lot of problems for all of us. It should never have been allowed to to operate. And frankly, I think if there had been regulated alternatives that had been accepted at the federal level in Washington, D.C., FTX would not have operated. Now, we can put the tinfoil hat on and say, well, politicians were just addicted to the money flow in both political parties. And that's why FTX was allowed to have the impact that it had. Um, but I, I think that it's a simpler it's it's simpler than that. Washington just it has its head in the sand. Uh, I saw somebody refer to it as the emu approach, um, head in the sand, thinking that this whole crypto thing is going to go away. A lot of very smart people think that it's going to go away. And the, and the world is, is proving them wrong. Um, and arguably, the door just opened last week because the Fed announced a novel activities supervision program. If you go back and look at the Fed's denial of Custodia's application back in early January, which was the tip of the spear of this whole Operation Choke Point 2.0 and all of government crackdown on crypto, the door was slammed shut. Well, seven months later, they've now opened the door a crack. We don't know what it means, but it's not nothing.
So when we look at uh, kind of, let's take the crypto entities first. We have FTX, we have BlockFi, we have Celsius, we have Voyager. Now we have Prime Trust. I'm sure there's others that I'm not even uh, yeah. remembering or, or kind of including in this group, but each one of them for different reasons, uh, there's been bankruptcies, customer funds um, you know, at risk, et cetera. What are the differences between some of these entities in terms of their legal structures? And how does that then compare to, let's say, a federally charted bank versus something yeah. like what is going on in Wyoming or, or somewhere else? Well, the biggest issue is, the biggest distinction is, is the entity a bank or a non-bank? So a trust company, a money transmitter, those are non-banks. If it's a bank, if it's got a bank charter, there's one very big distinction that cannot be overcome which is that banks cannot be resolved in federal bankruptcy court. They are exempt from federal bankruptcy. Banks and insurance companies and railroads are exempt from the federal bankruptcy code. Um, so what does that mean? It means if, if the institution fails and it's a bank, it will not end up in chapter 11. If it fails and it's not a bank, like the, all the ones you just listed, then it will probably end up in chapter 11. We just saw that this week with Prime Trust. They started in state, what's called state receivership, where the state ordered them not to operate. There, there's Nevada chartered trust company, and uh, the state ordered them to shut down. But now, um, six weeks later, they just went into federal bankruptcy court. What's the biggest impact of that? In a federal bankruptcy, the, the, the law is designed to maximize the value of the estate's assets for the stakeholders. They do, the law does not say that customers have to be put first. In a state receivership, by contrast, customers are typically put first, usually by law. So there's a big difference if your financial institution goes bust. If it's a bank, it's, you're more, much more likely to be protected as a customer than if you're dealing with a non-bank that could end up in Chapter 11. Now, what's the impact of that? We saw that in Celsius. There's a lot of misunderstanding out there. People think that just because the assets are held in trust, that means that they're immune to taking a haircut in bankruptcy. Well, Celsius is exhibit A for where that's not true because the judge in that case held that the custody assets at Celsius were indeed the property of the customers, but the judge would not let them take their assets out of Celsius because of the possibility that there were so-called preferences. And until all those preferences cleared, the custody customers couldn't get their assets out. So even though they were deemed to own the assets, guess what? They voluntarily agreed to take a 27.5% haircut. So they got 72.5 cents on the dollar voluntarily so that they didn't get stuck in years of litigation, this is what's called strong arming. And that's what happens in chapter 11. You can get strong armed into agreeing to take a haircut because until all those preferences are cleared, you're not going to get your money. And so even though they were deemed to own the assets, the cost benefit analysis done by that committee of custody customers ended up concluding that they were better off taking a 27 and a half cent haircut on every dollar. So just so they could get the money out now. And then they were all those preferences. They gave up all their preferences. They were, they, they, they got a release from the bankruptcy court that no one could come after them for preferences again. So they, they're now taking their money free and clear, but only 72 and a half cents. That's the difference. So yes, it does matter that there are banks here now. Bank of New York Mellon has been in, in custody, although, as you know, they've been essentially handcuffed. So not been able to, um, to grow because of the, 
um, the SEC's accounting pronouncements that are that are keeping publicly traded banks from um, from from building big custody businesses. But Custody is exempt from that because we're not a publicly traded company. So when you look at Prime Trust, which one are they going to fall into? Do you th- are they going to end up following more probably the Celsius path, or do they end up uh, being able to protect customer assets? Or we don't know yet. We don't know. That's the point. Nobody can say with certainty. So all these folks who are, who are out there saying, "Oh, that's those 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 assets are those ass- are their assets." Yes, but they might be stuck in a preference fight. Um, and and you know, it does matter. I, I, one of the things that I think is so 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 important for our industry is that everybody has to take some responsibility to start doing counterparty credit risk analysis on the on the counterparties. And the reason that I'm saying this in the, to answer your question is that Prime Trust was engaged in a whole bunch of activities that muddied the waters. Okay, I pointed out in their customer agreement that they were trading with customer assets. This was lawful in the cash accounts, and so basically, those cash accounts belong to the estate. They don't belong to the customers. So any of the cash accounts are already not going to be deemed to be the customer's assets. But even if even if the customer's trust assets are deemed to belong to the customers, Prime Trust was engaging in some of the lending businesses. What does that mean? If your counterpart is engaging in those lending businesses, they're creating preferences that may get fought over if the cust- if the counterparty ends up going bust. Okay, and we, we're seeing that in the, the BlockFi and Celsius um, um, chapter 11s. So th- you want to be with, if you're going to use a counterparty, and I think you and I both are, are big, not your keys, not your coins folks, encouraging people to learn how to self-custody your assets. But there are certain entities out there that legally cannot um, a registered investment advisor, a money, a mutual fund manager that by law, they have to segregate the management of the assets from the custody of the assets. Okay. So they're not legally allowed to self custody. So now what? Okay. What they want to do is do the counterparty credit risk analysis of understanding who their custodian is. If their custodian is engaging in lending activities, yeah, that, that means if that custodian fails, probably there, there's going to be a, a fight over preferences in chapter 11. If that custodian is trying to be all things to all people and, and engaging in risky crypto protocols that are not as tested as, say, Bitcoin is, you might just have Bitcoin there and think, well, I'll be fine. But no, if that custodian goes down and it's not a bank, you're going to be in the, in the mix just like with Celsius. So Prime Trust, the fact that it's going Chapter 11 just like Celsius did. Um, unfortunately means I think there are going to be some adverse surprises for folks, but we don't know. That's the point. There's so much uncertainty that comes with any chapter 11 process. Nobody can say definitively that even the trust customers will get a hundred cents on the dollar back. Uh, We just don't know. And only time will tell. So what you all are doing, I think most people hear bank and they start thinking US dollars. They start thinking all about kind of the legacy financial system. But obviously, Bitcoin and uh, stable coins is a huge part of your plan. Um, what exactly is Custodia uh, trying to do around like Bitcoin custody or things with a stable yeah. coin? Um, whether you get the federal charter or not, talk a little bit about mm-hmm. kind of how you can, you can uh, kind of mesh these two worlds together. Yeah. Well, it's not easy to do that. But yes, we are meshing US dollars in Bitcoin custody. And we're on the verge of launching 
Bitcoin custody. And as we've publicly announced, our U.S. dollar deposit business is launched, as is U.S. dollar money market funds. Uh, both are live and operating and, uh, and, and yeah, pretty exciting. Um, so why put those two things together? Because you need to be able to safely bridge the two. Uh, and I, I feel very strongly that, that the new system, the, the so-called Web3 system, should not hurt the traditional financial system, and the traditional financial system should not hurt crypto or Web3 or Bitcoin, whatever, whatever reference you want to call it. It is a new and different financial system. These are new and different payment rails, and they don't mesh well with traditional finance. Why? Let me give you a quick example. Bitcoin settles every 10 minutes on average. There's a new block appended to the Bitcoin blockchain every 10 minutes. It takes you at least a day to settle an ACH payment for US dollars, okay? So now you're looking at 10 minutes versus one day. Um, even if you send a Fedwire, it's not programmable. You're not going to be able to ensure that your US dollars reaches, their, reaches the destination at say 10.30 PM on a Saturday night. But, if, but you can program a stable coin for US dollars to reach the destination at 10.30 p.m. on a, st on a Saturday night. Um, so, so long story short, what we're trying to do is create real-time growth settlement where we match the settlement of US dollars with Bitcoin. And in order to do that, it has to be done under, this, under the same roof. Now, we're also offering the custody services as a bank. We just talked about why it's so important to have a clean counterparty and a counterparty that, that is a bank. If you're a fiduciary, that's what you want. Why is it that all the securities custodians are banks? It's exactly what I just talked about in those earlier questions, um, because, because banks treat customers a lot better in bankruptcy than non-banks do. So long story short, um, that's what Custodia is doing. We're, we're, we're building the fiduciary asset manager of choice, fiduciary, sorry, fiduciary custodian of choice um, for Bitcoin because we're offering what is the best customer protections and the most customer friendly legal and regulatory regime, but we're also doing it connected directly to US dollars. Now, one of the things that becomes interesting is uh, we've got BlackRock coming in. We've got Fidelity, obviously, has been here for a while. Um, a number of these really large organizations all starting to put together ETF applications, become more interested. There's others who I don't know if their plans are public or not, so I don't want to mention them by name, but very, yeah. very large financial institutions that are sinking hundreds of employees of resources, literally hundreds yes. of millions of dollars to build out things yes. for this space, whether it's infrastructure or else. Um, how does that change the pressure on either the Federal Reserve, the OCC, or kind of like the bank world, right? It's one thing if you're like, oh, the the crypto people are the crazy people on the internet and, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. we, we don't like them. It's another thing when Larry Fink is on national television being yeah. like, we believe this is an asset class that's going to be global in nature and we want to be a leader and we have, you know, a trillion plus dollars and like we're coming. Those two things seem very different in the eyes of regulators. Uh, is yeah. it changing the conversation for what you're trying to do? Uh, not in banking, no. Um, but I will say you're hitting on something really important, which is the soft corruption of the system. There is it, 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 there is an anti-startup bias. There is a very strong pro-incumbency bias, right? And so a lot of folks are celebrating the arrival of BlackRock. Why? Because BlackRock, I mean, go look at Jay Powell's calendar. Larry Fink can get time with Jay Powell. Could I get time with Jay Powell? No. I asked for it, never got it. Okay, so um, there is a soft corruption and a very strong incumbency bias that is not legal, by the way. And that's part of the reason why some of the startups who are challenging here, including Coinbase challenging the SEC, 
um, are challenging the, the, the old order. It's not legal that it's done this way. Uh, and now, I don't know that BlackRock's going to have an advantage or not, because there's such a strong anti-Bitcoin bias at the SEC right now. Um, but let me tell you what I think would be very, very, very interesting is that if a spot ETF is approved, typically ETFs allow redemption in cash and redemption in the underlying, but it's typically the issuer that has the option to decide whether to redeem for the underlying. It doesn't, that's not the right of the ETF holder. I think the real game changer isn't the ETF. The real, which I've said publicly is a double-edged sword because of all the, you know, rehabilitation games that, that ETF market managers can play. Here's the, here would be the real game, game changer, an ETF that gave the option to the ETF owner to settle in the underlying Bitcoin. Take that option away from the ETF issuer and give it to the owner or give it to both of them, right? Now, the ETF becomes the wrapper through which, if that happens, the market uh, that would allow that would allow customers to buy Bitcoin through the ETF structure, but keep the discipline on the ETF manager that at all times they damn well better keep enough Bitcoin in that custody pool to redeem one for one at all times, and they cannot play rehypothecation games where they're issuing more claims to Bitcoin. In other words, more ETF units in this case than they have real Bitcoin in custody. If there were a real ability for the owner to redeem for actual Bitcoin, that would be the game changer. And so I think that I, I would love to see that and frankly would love for Custodia to be part of that. To be clear, we're not approved for Bitcoin custody yet. We're waiting for final regulatory approval, but uh, knock on wood, we will be soon. When you look out at um, kind of the regulatory environment in the United States, are there other places around the world that are one company's trying to get kind of this meshing of crypto and, and the banking system. And then two, what are the responses from regulators in those uh, jurisdictions or those regions? Are they running into similar problems or are those regulatory bodies letting them get banking license and stuff like that? What, what's going on kind of internationally? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, it's the opposite of, what the, of what's happening in the U.S., which is why the U.S. is just those of us who are part of the industry who are actually trying to do lawful business and work with the regulators are dismayed at the terrible policy decision. And again, I think they it only took them seven months to start to open the door uh, to realize that this isn't going to go away. And the Fed in their new novel uh, um, activity supervision program acknowledged they don't have the skill set and that they're going to be working with the banking industry, the, the technology industry, fintechs, and academics is what they listed in their public press release last week. So that's an acknowledgement. That's a that's a that's a big acknowledgement that they don't have the skill set in house and that they need to go get it so that they understand how how to administer these novel activities. And to be fair, the novel activities went, went beyond just crypto, but of course it um they 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 did mention crypto. So coming back to answer your question, 
Um, Singapore just approved a stablecoin issuing um, uh, uh, regulatory regime just this week. Um, we've seen a Swiss regulators not just allowing Swiss banks to custody crypto, but to hold crypto on their balance sheets. Um, we've seen the Bank for International Settlements, which set, sets the the, um, the BIS capital requirements for Basel III, what's called Basel III, for global banks, um, proposed to allow banks to hold crypto on balance sheet, which the Fed in the Custodia case said, hell no, not ever, um, right? So the U.S. is really an outlier among the, the more developed nations. Uh, and of course, I, I would be remiss if I weren't mentioning what's going on in Hong Kong. There's a real opening of, of the Chinese market to the crypto industry again after a big crackdown. China has gone back and forth between cracking down and opening up, cracking down and opening up. And I think in part in reaction to the US, what the US has done, China has substantially reopened and is actually putting pressure on the banks to give bank accounts to the crypto industry. So the US is just a, a massive outlier here. My last question for you is, um, you mentioned that you tried to get time with Jay Powell at the Federal Reserve and you never got that time. Is that a common request for people to make of Jay? Uh, is it common for them to deny that? You mentioned, you know, large financial organizations get meetings all the time. What was kind of your yeah. reaction? And why, why do you think that you were denied the time with uh, Jay Powell? Uh, I, it's a good question. I don't know. We we, we were an applicant, uh, so but we repeatedly asked for time. I do know that others in the industry have gotten times with Fed governors. I never met him. Never met the, any of the people who made the decision ultimately, likely in in the custodial membership application, um, which was done by the the Federal Reserve Board. Except for I was on a panel with Lael Brainerd back in 2016 and then again in 2018. And that's uh, that's when I, I met her. But otherwise, the people who voted on the Custodia membership application never never got access to them. Again, that's part of the <laughs> part of the interesting uh, 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 dynamic that occurred there. But guess who got an hour with Jay Powell? Take a wild guess. Who got an hour with Jay Powell? Uh, three letter initials. Yep. Sam Bankman fried got an hour with Jay Powell. Yep. What do you think they talked about? Yep. I don't know. You know, it was before, of course, the whole thing blew up uh, and and it was revealed to be a fraud. Um, but uh, I don't know. I mean, at that point, what he was after was basically, you know, controlling the regulatory structure, right? Part of his pack and his spreading money around to pro-crypto politicians on both sides of the aisle, admittedly more so to Democrats, but a lot to Republicans as well. Um, and by the way, go look at who gets to meet with Jay Powell. How many people actually get one hour meetings with Jay Powell? This wasn't just any meeting. Larry Fink will get 15 minutes, but Sam Bankman fried got an hour with Jay Powell. That's public knowledge. I don't know why the press hasn't picked that up. But um, I don't know what they talked about. It would be interesting if anyone from the press is out there listening. Uh, it is public information that Sam Bankman-Fried spent an hour with Jay Powell. What did they talk about? Yeah, that is pretty fascinating. Uh, but, but, it, but I will say one thing is that happened right before Alameda took a control stake in Moonstone Bank. Moonstone was the bank that that um, I think there were a couple of media outlets um, that New York Times, I think, and Protos who broke the story that Alameda did this backdoor, what's called a charter strip acquisition, took, bought a tiny bank 
and and with the intention of changing its business plan to be pro, pro crypto, uh, they were shortcutting the process and the Fed didn't figure it out. Uh, one of Custodia's advisors wrote an op-ed in American Banker saying that acquisition violated the Fed's control rules and the Fed should have caught it. Um, but I happen to know there are five of those in process right now. We'll see if the if the federal regulators catch them. It's very ironic because those of us who are going through the front door asking for permission um, are getting slapped down, but those going through the back door uh, trying to pull a fast one um, have gotten through. And Moonstone is one of those. And so one of the questions, I don't recall the precise timing, but I think the um, Moonstone, Alameda took over Moonstone Bank in like February, um, and the the FTX meeting with Jay Powell happened right before that, I think in January. Those I might have those dates off by a little bit, but not by much. The time, the timing that separated Alameda taking over Moonstone Bank um, um, was not very long after FTX uh, the FTX meeting, as I recall. So we have a question here from uh, Luke. Luke, if you want to come off uh, mute and uh, ask it. Yeah. Hey, my question is, uh, I don't know if you can talk any more about. I hate to bring FTX up again, but for the average person now, it's so confusing where it's at. What's kind of like the next stage is just for the average person in terms of that recovery maybe. So I'll, I'll take a first stab at it, and but Pump, you may know you may know more. I, I looked at the docket for that bankruptcy filing and it is staggering. And it's not shocking that it's staggering because if you looked at the corporate structure, there were hundreds of legal entities in that corporate structure. And unwinding all that, just just finding all of those legal entities is is a lot of work. It sounds like from what has been disclosed, FTX did not maintain accurate books and records. So there has to be a lot of forensic accounting that's that's being done. And the amount of, of consultant fees, including legal and accounting fees in that bankruptcy is staggering, precisely because of how complex it is. It's going, going and finding all those assets. But yes, you're right. They, from what I have read, they have found a lot of assets and they're also clawing back a lot of assets. As I understand it, every politician who received donations has been asked to give the donations back by the Justice Department. So um, that's, uh, that's, that's significant. They are getting assets. I don't know what the ultimate settlement is going to be. And again, it's super complex because it's an offshore bank it's not all onshore in the United States. Uh, at the time when that happened and it all came out, I said this is probably going to be the most complex bankruptcy in U.S. history. And based on what I can see right now, just the number of, do of documents in the, in the docket and the number of lawsuits involved, it's, uh, it is shaping up to be that way. Pom, do you have anything to add? I don't have much to add. I, I think the two things um, that I'm paying attention to, one are all the clawback stuff. So we've seen uh, them already go back to a number of different uh, venture funds they had invested in, you know, different organizations, obviously the politicians you mentioned, like there's a whole bunch of stuff uh, where they're trying to track down, hey, where did this money go? Uh, and like, how do we get some of it back? Um, and then the second thing uh, is the restarting of FTX. Like, I actually think that's yeah. like a pretty interesting component of this where, um, I don't know if you ever build it back to what it was, but if you can even build it to a fraction no. of that from a liquidity standpoint, a revenue standpoint, you know, could you actually, uh, you know, somehow get more funds back uh, for these FCX creditors? Probably. Now, is that, you know, one cent on the dollar or is that 50 cents on the dollar? It's unclear. Um, but I, I think a lot of folks are focused on like, how much money can we recover from the existing assets? And a very big variable here is like how much money can be derived from future earnings or equity value by restarting the exchange and kind of coming out the other side. I don't know what that answer is, but it, it'll be pretty fascinating to watch that occur. 
Yeah, I mean, as you know, Pomp, that that platform was one of the most favored platforms because of the tech. Unfortunately, what we know is that behind it, there was roughshod operations, uh, if any. You know, it doesn't sound like they were even were keeping books and records. It certainly wasn't in a position ever to be audited, right? So, um, but the tech is is was by far the the, the favorite tech of users in the industry. Um, and you know what? I guess the message I would have is, as someone who did lose money in Mt. Gox, it was the same kind of thing. I was like, well, that was the only way to get Bitcoin way back then, and so I lost money in, in Mt. Gox. I hadn't taught myself how to how to do um, private key custody to self custody the assets. Uh, and nine years later, I still haven't gotten the money back. Um, I'm, I don't know if I ever will, actually. But long story short, um, you got to be careful because just because something is the only or the best doesn't mean that's the counterparty you want to face. Caitlin, one last question that I have for you is when you look at uh, the United States, and obviously we now are getting a growing number of politicians uh, at the local, state, and even federal level uh, who are sympathetic to this technology, this industry, these assets, and I think to maybe the plight of the entrepreneur trying to deal with the, the regulatory uncertainty, et cetera. Um, yeah. How do you see crypto, Bitcoin, stable coins, et cetera, playing out with the presidential election. So it's like, you know, all of these politicians, we, we've already seen that playing out, but this feels like maybe it's the first presidential election where Bitcoin yeah. is a part of the conversation. It, it's definitely not the thing, but it's a thing. And we've seen multiple presidential candidates come out in support of Bitcoin. Is that just, does that yeah. become the norm or, or what are you thinking there? I love it. I mean, it is, it is somewhat generational, but the, 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 Leaders in both political parties polling right now are both of a different generation than the average Bitcoiner, let's put it that way. Um, and they're both anti-crypto, right? Trump himself was very anti-crypto because Steve Mnuchin, his treasury secretary, was anti-crypto, although it has just been disclosed that he owns some Ethereum. And then we know what Biden, is, the Biden administration's view is. It's it's virulently anti-crypto, and you know, especially going after the people who are trying hardest to work with the regulators. It's been designed to sort of you know shoot the stallion, the stallion to scatter the herd, so to speak. And I don't think the Biden administration is going to change. Although I will say um, there are some people in the Biden administration who were, who are very pro-crypto. It's it, it's it's a strange bedfellows kind of thing where it doesn't cut across traditional po uh, political parties and it doesn't um, cut across uh, even you know within both the Trump administration where you had Brian Brian Brooks who was very pro um, and Steve Mnuchin who was very against. There are very pro folks within the. Biden White House, but the people in charge of economic policy right now are not among them. <laughs> so, um, so long story short, yes, I think it will become a presidential uh, um, election issue. But right now, it's the secondary candidates who are talking about it. There's pretty much unanimity among those secondary candidates um, who have spoken about it that they're pro. I suspect uh, the neocon types are against. We haven't heard. Um, um, Tim Scott yet come out and say what he thinks. He is the ranking member of the Senate Banking Committee. So any any legislation, any crypto legislation that goes through before the end of the Biden administration must go through him. So I think it's ultimately going to, um, he's going to have to take a position at some point. And um, my gut is that he's going to be positive because of the, the freedom arguments. But boy, there are a couple of candidates in both political parties who are making beautiful arguments for the freedom to transact financially and for being able to protect 
financial privacy. I, I'm, I'm spending time with multiple of the, of them, their campaign staffs. I'm not endorsing anybody, but I'm willing on a policy discussion matter to talk to anybody who's interested in learning about Bitcoin and, and coming out with policies. And I just this morning, uh, someone asked me, how do we, how do we maintain financial privacy and balance the policy goal of not allowing the financial system to be used for money laundering? And the answer is, you fix the third party doctrine, which is the doctrine that once you give up any data to a third party, you've given up a privacy interest in it and the government can go to the bank or to your cell phone company and get every financial transaction you've ever done uh, and get every, every cell phone location ping that your cell phone has ever pinged, right? That data is commercially available and, and especially the banks just have to turn it over when the government comes calling. Um, and so the easiest way to deal with that is to say, all right, um, for money laundering, laundering purposes, the government can use that data, but the government can't use that data for anything else. So just pass a law that says it cannot be used as evidence in, in criminal cases and civil cases, that it is private for everything except for money laundering. That, that, that would, boy, that would solve a lot of problems. That would, that would help, uh, help keep privacy. Um, so if you see a presidential candidate start espousing that, uh, 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 you might, might, uh, might trace it back to, to me because they thought it was a pretty good idea. So we'll see um, if it if it actually comes out in policy. But that's how you start to restore privacy rights and Fourth Amendment protections that have been completely gutted by the fact that the government doesn't need to go to a court and prove probable cause to get a search warrant. They'll just go buy your data from a third party data provider and use it as evidence against you. And until we restore the Fourth Amendment protections, unfortunately, um, you know the, the the walls are closing in on Americans' privacy, on our on our rights and freedoms to transact. And I hope that uh, that a politician breaks through, and uh, one one specifically that is truly committed to freedom. So I'll leave you with one last thing, which is a complete hypothesis on my standpoint or from my perspective. I think that Trump's uh, disclosure of Ethereum. Um, it's mm -hmm. unclear whether it's Ethereum or it's assets in an Ethereum-based wallet. And regardless okay. of that distinction, I think it's probably related to the NFTs that he was selling as a fundraiser. Yeah. So he was doing all like these like Trump NFTs, which like look ridiculous and, you know, are exactly what kind of you would expect. Um, but my guess is that either it was Ethereum he was receiving right in, in exchange for those NFTs or he has like NFTs left over or like maybe he like yeah. put some aside or, or whatever. Which is funny because it's very different than I think people who are celebrating like, oh, Trump's into like crypto now, right? Like, no, no. actually, he just saw it as like a vehicle, if that is what it is. To make money. To, to, yeah. Yeah, to, to fundraise, yeah. right? Um, right. And, and like, regardless of what you think well, of him as a president or an individual or whatever, yeah. it, it almost speaks to the fact of like, this is a growing part of the world where somebody can do that. They can say it's not just an investment type vehicle. It is a commerce type thing. And so, right. you know, eventually you're going to get businesses that do this. You're going to get people who are running who, who you don't know. Are they buying these assets for investment purposes? Was it for something else that they did? It's just going to become much more, you know, kind of normal in the world than maybe what it was, you know, yeah. five years ago. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, don't forget Melania issued NFTs as well, right? And since they're married, they, they, they could be hers, could be related to her issuing, issuing them as well. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Your broader point is absolutely right. This is all normalized now. I saw, I think it was a Coinbase survey, 19% of New Yorkers own digital assets. That's mm-hmm. all New Yorkers. That's not, you know, within a certain generation um, it's obviously going to be a lot higher in the younger generations and a lot lower in the older generations. But 19% of every New Yorker owns crypto. That's pretty meaningful. Um, and I think the next bull market, maybe we can end on, a, on, a, on an up note, the next bull market, uh, which is likely to be ushered in after the halvening of Bitcoin in April of 2024, typically what happens is the miners consolidate. And uh, uh, because a lot of the, the old mining that was reliant upon the higher block rewards that get cut in half at every happening, those old miners will be shut down. You see, a, uh, you see some of those companies go out of business. You see the, the hash rate come offline. And then after that consolidation period, which typically lasts about six months, the bull market gets ushered in. Okay, what I just described to you is a fundamental process. This is not a technical thing. um, But a lot of people will trade ahead of it. And what we saw, there was a big debate four years ago, well, three and a half years ago over um, whether the happening was priced in, and it was not. Um, And this whole question of of like efficient markets hypothesis, we all know the happening's coming. So um, it has to be priced in, right? And it was not priced in because these are very fundamental things and nobody that, you know, the miners will keep mining until the very last minute that, that their, that their machines are no longer profitable. And then they will out, they will all shut them off. They're not trading ahead of that. Um, maybe arguably because there's a better, there are deeper futures markets than there used to be. Some of them are hedging so that they can trade ahead of it. But I still think this is going to be a pretty fundamental uh, phenomenon and we are likely to have a bull market. It's not going to be as material each time the bull markets are less in their amplitude. Um, but they're still coming and the impact of that on adoption when all these anti-crypto army folks uh, who are trying to kill it and are trying to argue that it's worth zero and it's going to go to its intrinsic value, which they say is zero. And when it's when they're proven wrong, all of a sudden, I think you're going to see doors opening, right? And, and like the Fed announced last week with its novel activity supervision program, it reversed itself seven months later after saying essentially, hell no. Now it's, well, we've got to figure out how to supervise this stuff because it is causing risks in the banking system. And uh, candidly, that's a positive development. And I think um, we're, we're, the US is ultimately going to pull its head out of the sand and get there. Uh, but the rest of the world and the markets themselves are going to just keep right on going regardless of what the US does. Where can we send people to find you on the internet or find out more about Custodia? Ah, custodiabank.com and uh, pretty active on Twitter and LinkedIn and Noster. Awesome. Caitlin, thank you so much for doing this. I always enjoy talking to you. I always learn something and we would definitely do it again in the future. 
Likewise. Yeah, thanks. And thanks for, for uh, being a guinea pig. I was one of your first guinea pigs on your original podcast. You were. And uh, I love helping you out trying to, to, to try this new format. So thanks, everybody, for joining. 